Hello Bulls fans and welcome to another episode of Bulls HQ. Thank you for joining me again this week as we take you through the latest news, analysis and game action surrounding our Chicago Bulls. And it's been about two weeks since I last recorded a podcast, so apologies for that, but I've had a few family things that have sort of popped up that I couldn't necessarily avoid and just the wrong time of year to be having those sorts of issues as well as this toothache that has sort of just sprung on me recently. So I'm going to the dentist this afternoon. So I figured if I'm going to record a show before this side of Christmas, then I better get it done today before I go to the dentist because who knows if I'll be able to speak after I get there and they probably do a whole bunch of stuff on my teeth and I end up losing about $1,000 in work. So I'm tipping the dentist is going to sting me bad later today. So I thought I better get in the show now before Christmas because if I don't do it today, I probably won't be doing it until the new year and that's just way too long to be going without recording a show. So I thought I'd better do it. There's a lot to discuss as always as there is with the Chicago Bulls team at the moment given the drama that continues to circulate this team. Whether it's coaching decisions, the coach himself, injuries, the results, there's just a whole bunch of stuff happening that makes it hard to ignore this team for all the wrong reasons unfortunately at the moment. So I don't really know where to start. Like I said, it's been a little while since I last recorded. I believe five games have gone since I last spoke, which was uh, pretty much after the player mutiny was sort of planned. So the Bulls had lost by 56 points to the Celtics. They had a game coming up against the Kings, and that was pretty much where I left you guys. And since then, they've pretty much only won the one game, and that was that random somehow come from behind win against the San Antonio Spurs, which to me... Always looked like a bit of an outlier win. When you're down 20 points to the Spurs on the road, typically you don't come back from that. But somehow the Bulls managed to do so. And they look, credit to them, they, they obviously got the win. They played some, some pretty damn good basketball in that second half against the Spurs. But I think that part of that was also the Spurs letting up and getting or allowing the Bulls to get back into that game. But at the same time, credit for the Bulls for coming back, particularly Chris Dunn. I thought he was fantastic in that Spurs game. And Larry Markinen, too, who had 23 points and 7 rebounds. Probably his one of his best games of the season. We'll talk about the Brooklyn Nets game a little bit later on where the complete reverse happened with Lowry. But I've got some takes about that one. But seeing as I've missed like five games here, and I don't really want to go into the minutiae of each game. I don't think that's necessarily makes sense at this point, given two weeks have lapsed since I've last spoken to you guys. So what I thought I'd do is maybe just touch on some of the themes that have I guess bothered me or or have me concerned about this team over the last let's just call it two weeks or five games and let's start with the elephant in the room for me which is the fact that this rebuild has not had the ability to really show us what the combination of Chris Dunn, Zach Levine and Larry Markkinen can be together. So I think that's probably the most frustrating thing throughout this season because this was I, I made this argument in the off season that coming into this season I thought this one was probably going to be more important in the overall scheme of how this rebuild sort of trended more so than last season. That's because obviously Zach Levine was coming back from an ACL injury last season. Chris Dunn and Lowry Markkinen had good years and were better for it and were coming into their second year in Chicago. And obviously you added Wendell Carter Jr. into the fold as well. So I thought in terms of development, this season was probably going to be much more important than what last season could have ever been. So with that in mind, it was going to be a critical year for development, but this most recent injury to Zach Levine, who sustained an ankle injury in that game against the Orlando Magic in Mexico, he was sort of, after the game, he mentioned that he he felt a pop, which is never a good sign. Despite that, he said he didn't think it was a big issue, but anytime you hear a pop, it's generally not great. 
And the Bulls initially listed him as a day-to-day, but he missed a couple games here and there. But all of a sudden, as it typically is the case with the Bulls, a minor injury turned into something a little bit more significant. And now Zach Levine is going to be missing two to four weeks. So he's out for a while. We've already seen Larry and miss the first two months of the season. Chris Dunn was out for four to six weeks earlier in the season as well. So basically, these three guys, we haven't seen them play much together at all. So that just continues the trend from last season where we only got to see about 255 minutes of these guys off the top of my head. And obviously, like I mentioned before, Levine was coming back from a knee injury during that period. So I don't know how reliable that data necessarily is, but I'm starting to question even without necessarily seeing these guys together, if it will work. And and what I mean by that is obviously we haven't seen them play many meaningful minutes together when all three of them have been healthy. And and even now, if Levine was back, obviously Larry Market, and he doesn't look in his best form currently. He's still getting used to game speed, still getting back into his rhythm, obviously. So even if Levine was around, you could sort of question how meaningful these minutes would be right now, given Market isn't 100%. But I guess once they do get back together, we'll, we'll find out if if this will work. So maybe these comments that I'm about to make will be null and void. But I'm starting to worry that this isn't going to work. And, and the reason why I say that, and it could be purely co- a coincidence, but without Zach Levine, we've seen a more assertive Chris Dunn. We've seen Chris Dunn look like the Chris Dunn of last season. But when he has been paired with Zach Levine, but whether it was last season or we in the sparing moments that we've seen them play together this season, is he's been forced into an off-ball role. And quite clearly, Chris Dunn is not an off-ball player. He cannot shoot the ball, shooting only 25% from three this season. But what he has been doing as the lead playmaker for this squad is obviously controlling the offense, controlling his own offense, but making plays for others as well, which is, I guess, the role Zach Levine had before Chris Dunn came back. So you've pretty much got two different styles of players playing effectively the same role, but have been doing so without each other. So they're both doing similar things, I guess, or have the same role, but in doing it in a different way. And for Dunn, a player who can't necessarily work off ball, he isn't necessarily a great cutter, obviously isn't a good shooter. When you play him off ball and stick him in a corner or something of that nature, or just having sort of languishing on the opposing wing, not doing not much, that's exactly what he's doing, not much. So I'd question what his role can be with Zach Levine if Zach is going to be so ball dominant. Now, I kind of get it from Zach Levine's perspective. Why wouldn't you want to be the ball dominant player of this team? When he got here, he said he wanted to be the franchise player. And when you are the franchise player, that typically comes with being the guy that takes the most shots, comes with being that lead guard who sort of controls the offense. So I get it from Levine's perspective. And I think he's got some credence as to why he would want to have that role. He obviously played that role earlier in this season. He's been a dynamic scorer. He's obviously had a career year. So to him, I think he would have some evidence for his own point of view as to why he should maintain that role. But thinking about it from like a schematic view, Dunn needs to be in that role too because he can't play off the ball. And I don't think it's a coincidence now that Dunn is playing so well without Zach Levine in the lineup. I mentioned that Spurs game a little bit earlier, and the Bulls don't come back in that second half without Chris Dunn going into that dominant sort of ball-handling role in that second half. He was great in that game after maybe not necessarily the fastest start, but he came on strong in the second half and finished the game with 24 points. But more importantly, he iced the game with a couple mid-range jumpers there that 
pretty much, I guess, carries on the theme of what we saw last season of Chris from Chris Dunn. The, the fact that this guy is willing to sort of step up in those closing moments and make a play. And to his credit, he's been showing that he can actually do that pretty well. So he had the 24 points and 7 rebounds against the Spurs. A little bit quieter the night, the night after against the Oklahoma City Thunder with only the 12 points and 7 assists. Only took 8 shots, which was, I thought, a little bit weird. That was a bit strange, but then followed that back up against the Brooklyn Nets as probably the best ball in this game, scoring 24 points, handing out six assists. So Chris Dunn in that active ball handling lead guard role has actually played pretty damn well since being reinserted into that starting lineup now that Zach Levine has sort of gone out with injury. And I know that there's still time for these guys to work it out. And I'm not necessarily giving up on these three as a trio, but it's Becoming more than a coincidence, in my opinion, that Dunn seems to be playing a lot better without Zach Levine, and I think it's just purely down to role. So that's been the probably the biggest disappointment with all these injuries to the Chicago Bulls. The fact that we haven't been able to at least establish 100% if what I'm suggesting is true or not. I could be completely wrong about this. Maybe Dunn and Levine will get it together, and maybe Dunn and Levine can work if Levine moves more onto an off-ball role. Maybe that's something that could progressively happen over time. But the fact that Levine exited the team being the number one guy and now Chris Dunn has sort of supplanted Levine as that type of player, it could make things a lot awkward when Zach comes back in two to four weeks. So how they will gel once Levine gets back, that's going to be super important for the remainder of the season. So we'll see how that sort of plays out. But I'm hoping it's for the better because if you've been watching these these last few games, and credit to you if you have because I haven't necessarily been pretty at all. But the Bulls are so devoid of, of offense at the moment. Now, part of that is the talent. Obviously, if you remove Zach Levine from the rotation due to an injury and you take Jabari Parker completely out of it because he's... I guess he's a power forward and the, and, the, and the Bulls have Markinen and Portis back. And obviously the Bulls are probably going to be training Jabari pretty soon here, which I'll talk about a little bit later on as well. But when you remove Levine and Jabari Parker, who have been the team's top two scorers this season thus far, you got, your offense is going to be bad. But making it even worse is the fact that Jim Boylan has taken over this team and has completely reshaped the offense to the point where it is not functioning well at all. So again, without going into the minutiae of each single game, this, I just wanted to touch on some of the issues that have been really annoying me with Jim Boyle. And, and look, to be fair, it's a pretty damn long list. I'll be upfront about that. I haven't been impressed with him at all. And it, I guess the ironic thing here is the Bulls thought they were getting rid of a, a bad coach in Fred Hoiberg. But amusingly, I think they've actually found one that's much worse in Jim Boylan. So... That hasn't necessarily gone to plan for the Bulls, which is an issue in itself, one I've banged banged on about long enough before. But my main issue with Boylan at the moment, aside from the fact that he has all these stupid cliche coaching type speak after and before games, is the fact that he's remodeled this offense to a style that just does not fit this team at all. He's really made it a half-court offense. He's really slowed the game down a lot. And in doing so, he's making the Bulls play a game style that's sort of better suited for a veteran team that has the experience and understanding of how to operate in a half-court offense, which is something this young Bulls team just doesn't have. And I question if the roster is actually built to do so. And what I mean by that is the fact that this team has so few playmakers on the squad that it's kind of hard to ask a team rebuilding around two big men 
to actually be an efficient offense. And that's before the Bulls were even efficient under Hoiberger, which is something they definitely weren't. So you're actually asking a bad offensive team to be a decent offensive team in the half court, which isn't really something possible. And it's not really possible because like I said, the Bulls don't have enough playmakers. They don't have enough triple threats out on the court that can actually do enough with the ball in hand or for others to make this offense function against high level defenses in the half court. And we saw that against the OKC Thunder. Now, obviously, the Bulls had a great win against the Thunder maybe two weeks ago, just prior to the whole meltdown that sort of occurred against the Boston Celtics. But for a young and inexperienced team, going up against a team like the Thunder, who are the best defense in the NBA, and having a young and inexperienced team that doesn't have a lot of playmakers on the floor, doesn't have enough shooting on the floor, and is rebuilding around two big men who need the ball sort of delivered to them in their spots for it to actually work. This idea of sort of boiling everything down in the half court on every single possession because you want to teach the team the basics, it's just asking for trouble. And we saw that against the Thunder. And I think it's going to be a reoccurring issue, particularly against good defensive teams. This this roster isn't necessarily equipped to sort of handle this style of play at all. And it's putting too much pressure on someone like Chris Dunn to go out there and not only be the team's best scorer, which he has been over the last sort of five games, but it's also asking a lot for him to sort of play, make his way through a defense that has a chance to load up on a young and unexperienced Bulls team who doesn't necessarily know how to play in the half court. So that's really bothering me Bothering me with Boylan. The fact that he's gone from 0 to 100 from switching up the game style as to what Fred Hoiberg wanted to do versus what he is trying to do, which is more Spursian like of, say, 2013 and 14. But like I said before, the Bulls aren't the 2013 San Antonio Spurs, which is a team that moved the ball around the perimeter at an instant They had shooters all over the court, but more importantly, they had guys at positions who could make plays off the dribble. They could make plays by just catching and shooting, and they made the right plays every single time, but they did so because they had been playing that way for years, and then because they were a veteran team who had been drilled that way for years. So I understand what Boiling is trying to do, and I think with a veteran team, it could probably work, but for a team like the Bulls, going from 0 to 100 so quickly and trying to do that almost halfway through a season... I'm not surprised the Bulls have been so damn poor coming into Boylan's tenure here. And just to give you some sort of perspective of how bad things have been now, people have talked ad nauseum about how bad Fred Hoiberg was as a coach, but the Bulls have gone backwards under Jim Boylan. Now, I'll get, I'll put the caveat on it that it is a small sample. It's only eight games. The Bulls are two and six through that period, I believe. And through that period, obviously, there's the 56-point loss to the Boston Celtics, which will obviously skew some numbers during that small sample size. But at the same time, the Bulls have gone backwards under Boylan, particularly on offense. So under Hoiberg, whilst the Bulls were 29th in offensive rating, scoring only 101 points per 100 possessions, under Boylan, it's gone down to 94.2 points, or at least that's where it was against the Thunder. Now, given that the Bulls only scored 93 points against the Nets last night, I'm tipping it hasn't necessarily trended up from there. And if it has, it's, it's very marginal at all. So the Bulls are actually seven points worse off on offense under Boylan. So whilst they've moved from 29th to 30th, which we can sit here and say isn't that much, isn't a really dramatic move. You're still remaining in the bottom two in the league anyway, so what's the big deal? It is actually a big deal because seven points worse off per 100 possessions is significant. 
Now, if you're going to be so bad on offense and you, if your offense is going to go backwards, then your defense sort of need to, needs to really pick itself up, which isn't necessarily happening for the Bulls. Their defense has certainly been better under Boylan, but it's been nowhere good enough to sort of sustain this issue that we've had on offense. And to give you some sort of comparison to where the defense is under Boylan versus where it was under Hoiberg, with Fred Hoiberg, the defense was giving up 110 points per 110.6 points per 100 possessions, which ranked 22nd in the NBA. Now, under Boylan, like I said, it's improved, but it's only been marginal. The Bulls are giving up 108.6 points per 100 possessions under Boylan, which has put them up up into 15th in the league. So they're right in the middle there, which I guess sounds like a big improvement. But the fact that they've come from 15th to 22nd, you can sort of look at that and say, well, that's a pretty good jump. But really, it's only a, let's just call it a two points per 100 possession improvement now, that's nowhere near good enough if you're giving up an extra seven points on offense compared to what the Bulls were doing under Hoiberg. That net difference, that extra five points, let's call it, the Bulls are actually five points worse off under Boylan per 100 possessions, which isn't good. Now, obviously, I mentioned the fact that there was that 56-point loss to the Boston Celtics, which has helped sort of crater those numbers under Boylan. But at the same time, if we talk about assist percentage, that's down under Boylan. The rebounding has not picked up um, under Jim Boylan. Fred Hoiberg was sort of really criticized about having the Bulls not hit the offensive glass, having them run back in transition and not worrying about the offensive rebounding. But that hasn't necessarily improved under Boylan at all either. Turnovers have skyrocketed with Jim Boylan. And that is because, like I said before, this team doesn't have enough creators on the court. It doesn't have enough playmakers. And sort of forcing the team to lock down and slow it down into that half court means there's going to be more turnovers. And the Bulls have gone from 21st in turnover percentage, averaging 14.9 turnovers under Hoiberg, to last in the league under Boylan. So when you look at all these advanced type metrics, the Bulls have actually regressed under Jim Boylan. And I think a lot of it has to do with the way he's sort of gone about structuring his offense. Whilst I am prepared to sit here and say the Bulls are playing with more intensity, they're playing with more effort, the defense has largely been a lot better. I think at the same time, a lot of that relates to the fact that Zach Levine is out injured and you've actually removed Jabari Parker from the rotation. Now, doing that is obviously going to make your defense better. When you can sort of replace Zach Levine with Chris Dunn, obviously you're going to be a lot better on the defensive side of the ball. When you bring back Bobby Portis and you have Larry Markin playing power forward, you don't have to play Jabari Parker at all. And you're not necessarily playing backup power forward and center rotations that consist of Jabari Parker and Bobby Portis. And now you're utilizing Robin Lopez a lot more. Obviously, your defense is going to be a lot better. So in that sense, even though the defense has improved marginally, is it more on Boylan? Or is it the fact that the Bulls have sort of just shaped up their rotations to the point where Jabari Parker has been completely shelved, is completely removed from the rotation for now at least. And obviously, Zach Levine is out injured. So... I don't know if anything really has improved under Boylan at this point. And more frustrating than maybe that his offensive style is the way he's sort of handing out these minutes. His his minutes distribution is completely weird. And I don't really get this at all. And I, I, I'll refer back to the Nets game last night, which is something a couple people pointed out to me on Twitter last night and something I certainly noticed as well. But how the hell does Wendell Carter Jr. only get 23 minutes against the Brooklyn Nets? It is completely ridiculous considering that Wendell actually played 12 minutes in the first quarter and only played 
11 minutes for the remaining three quarters if I've done my math correctly here early in my morning. So if that's the case, what the hell is going on? Now you can sort of point to maybe it could have been foul trouble, which has obviously been an issue for Wendell Carter Jr. throughout his early parts of his Bulls career here. But that wasn't the case in this in this Nets game. He did have three fouls early in the third quarter, but he only finished the game with four. He was nowhere near picking up five or six fouls and fouling out of the game. So why is he only getting 23 minutes? This is, like I said before, this is a development year. This is a crucial year for the Bulls' development in terms of where this rebuild potentially is heading. But Jim Boylan is only giving Wendell Carter Jr. 23 minutes against a Brooklyn Nets team who isn't necessarily that stacked in the front court and is coming off a back-to-back. How is this happening? I don't get it. So the minutes to Carter, the way that were distributed was just crazy. And Stefano noted this on Twitter, but like I said before, Wendell Carter Jr. played the entire first quarter, which I looked at that at that point and the fact that he had no fouls. And I was actually thinking to myself, I didn't necessarily tweet it out, but I was thinking, well, we might actually get a 35-minute game here for Wendell Carter Jr. If he's playing 12 minutes in the first quarter, he may play, let's just call it 12 minutes in the third quarter. That's at least 24 minutes, maybe with a couple of minutes here and there in the second and fourth. This could be a big night for Wendell. And obviously, he didn't have any foul issues, so that's why I was thinking that. But then, for whatever reason, Boylan kept out Wendell Carter Jr. for basically the first 10 minutes of the second quarter. Carter Jr. only reinserted himself back into that second quarter with 2 minutes and 39 seconds left to play. So, for no real reason at all, Wendell Carter Jr. sat for 10 minutes doing nothing on the bench whilst Boylan sort of ran out his second units there. I don't get why you would ever leave a player like Wendell Carter Jr., who's your starting center, your most recent prized draft pick. Someone that you definitely want to be pouring minutes into by himself to develop himself, but also to develop chemistry with Chris Dunn and obviously Larry Markman. Why the hell is he sitting for 10 minutes if he's not in foul trouble? So that was crazy. He barely played in the third, just going about five or six minutes in the third quarter. But again, in the fourth quarter, it seems like Jim Boylan completely forgot about Wendell Carter Jr. Again, the first 10 minutes of that quarter... He basically sat and he only came back into the game because Bobby Portis has sprained his ankle, which I'll talk about a little bit later on. But does Wendell Carter Jr. come back into that game if Bobby Portis doesn't get injured? I have no idea. Now, I'm not necessarily going to sit here and say Wendell Carter Jr. was having his best game and deserved to be getting 30, 35 minutes or something of that nature. He shouldn't be handed minutes. But to be only playing 23 minutes in a game and be sitting for such large portions of that game... It was completely nuts. And if that wasn't egregious enough, how the hell does Lowry Markkinen only get six shot attempts? What what the hell is going on? How does that possibly happen in a game of NBA basketball that your best scorer without Zach Levine is only getting six shots in a game against a team coming off of back-to-back? I don't get that at all. Six shots for Lowry Markkinen in 33 minutes he played. Six shots. That is completely and utterly ridiculous. If Fred Hoiberg had done that, Bulls Nation would be marching. They would be ready to lynch up Hoiberg. They would be approaching the United Center right now, and they would be storming the gates, calling for Hoiberg's firing. Obviously, there was some outrage for Boylan, but I I, I don't understand how this possibly happens here. Now, some of it, Lowry Markner needs to own too. He was passive. He wasn't necessarily chasing down the ball. And he was guarded by Rondé Hollis-Jefferson, who is a very good defender. But at the same time, whilst I have some concerns about Lowry being a little passive there, like I said before, he is returning 
from an injury, our expectations should be lowered somewhat. But to only get six shots in a game, I have to question coaching at that point. How can you not? In a game where Ryan Archidiakono and Cameron Payne have as many shots as Larry Markman, and the only two balls that have less shots in a game were Chandler Hutchinson and Robin Lopez, I have to question coaching. Bobby Portis had 18 shots in 24 minutes. How the hell does Larry Markman only get six? Like I said, Larry has to own some of that. He was passive. He wasn't doing everything he could to get the ball. And if he can be taken out of a game so easily by an undersized power forward, then that is somewhat concerning as well. But I'm willing to give him the benefit of the doubt for the moment because we've seen him take over games recently, even though he is coming back and we should have our expectations lowered for the guy. To only have six shots in a game Zach Levine doesn't play. Fair enough if it was maybe 10 or 11 shots and and Rondé Hollis-Jefferson had completely taken Larry out of the game. Maybe at that point, if Larry's shooting 2 from 11 or something like that, it's more so on the player than it necessarily is on the coaching. But only 6 attempts, man, that is bad. And if I'm not mistaken, I believe only 1 came after the first quarter. And I'm not mistaken, I just looked it up. Larry Markkinen, his eight points all came in the first quarter. He was three or five in that quarter. His five attempts came in the first quarter. He had one more shot for the remaining three quarters. How does that How does that happen? <laughs> oh, Jim Boylan, you, you're absolutely making me infuriated. And I don't think I'm overreacting at this point. I know I've been a somewhat of a Fred Hoiberg defender of, of sorts. But I don't know how anyone here can be sitting here and saying what's happening with Jim Boylan is actually a positive for this Bulls team. As I mentioned before, the team rankings are going backwards. The offensive style is not suited for how this team needs to play. The minute distributions, particularly for Wendell Carter Jr. last night against the Nets, was horrific. And the fact that Larry Markkinen only gets six shots against the Nets as well, that is completely egregious. For any other coach, we would be demanding him being fired on the spot. But the Bulls don't have really any other option here but to sort of prolong their existence with Jim Boylan. Given they got rid of Fred Hoiberg so early in the season, they don't really have any other option but to stick it out with Jim Boylan. And obviously the the fact that they've lifted the interim tag on Boylan, he's remaining here for the next 50 or so games. So hopefully it doesn't remain this way. Hopefully this is just a temporary shift to what he's trying to do and that he'll wisen up and things will change in time. But man... Like I said before, you've gone too hard too quickly. Pace yourself, Jim. It's an 82-game season. You've just taken over. This is your first coaching job. You want to make an imprint. You're definitely doing that, but not in a positive way. Just just calm down a little bit, please. And in doing so, I may be able to do so too. So please, Jim, I'm begging you. Just be smart here. (laughs) Oh, man. Thank you for putting up with that rant. I didn't necessarily know I had that one in me, but I needed to get it out, obviously. But I'm hoping that game against the Nets, particularly in the way Wendell Carter Jr. was handled and specifically Larry Markin's shot attempts, I'm hoping that was an outlier of sorts because we can't afford to see that happening again. And maybe it will be because, like I mentioned before, Bobby Portis is now out injured. He sprained his ankle in that Nets loss. He will be out two to four weeks, which is devastating from Bobby himself given that he missed four to six weeks earlier in the season with a knee injury. He'll be missing two to four weeks here with an ankle issue. And given the fact that he's going into free agency, the Bulls and Bobby Portis obviously didn't come to an extension in the offseason. I'm sort of wondering if he's, if he's cost himself some money here. And in that regard, I sort of feel sorry for Bobby Portis. He's sort of bet on himself, but his body is failing him 
thus far through this season. And it just continues the spate of injury issues that the Bulls have had. Like I mentioned before, Levine is now out two to four weeks with an injury to his ankle as well. Obviously, we've seen Denzel Valentine go out for an entire season. Larry Markinen got hurt. Chris Dunn got hurt. I think it's easy at this point to maybe question whether things are happening with the Bulls' medical staff, which has obviously been an issue throughout the years. I don't know if that's the case here. These are probably more isolated incidents, so I don't know if we can necessarily lump this on the training staff. I think I would like to do that because obviously that's the easier thing to do, but they're kind of freak incidents. Like, for example, Zach Levine rolling his ankle or spraining his ankle. Is that is that an issue that's being sort of forced upon the Bulls by the training staff, or is that just a random freak event that's occurred? I probably sit on the ladder there, but at the same time, specifically with Levine, probably not a great idea to be playing a guy who's still returning from an ACL, his first full season, coming back from a significant knee injury to be playing him or pushing him at 40 minutes a game. That's probably not a wise idea. That is something that's certainly controllable by the Bulls, even if these freak incidents aren't. But it just continues the long list of injuries here for the Bulls. So Bobby Portis will be missing two to four weeks now with an injury, which hopefully will mean more minutes for Larry Markman and Wendell Carter Jr. But more importantly, more involvement for those two guys in the offense. Now, like I said before, I don't think getting the offense bogged down in a half-court sort of sense is a good way of actually utilizing their skills at all. So even if they do get good shots and good attempts, I don't think the Bulls have enough talent around them to necessarily set that up for them. So I, I can't necessarily sit here and say that I'm looking forward to what this offense will sort of provide these two, but hopefully it's more than what they've we've seen in most recently under Boylan here for marketing specifically. But but what this may mean as well in terms of Bobby Portis going down with two to four weeks is obviously Jabari Parker, who has been shelved here for the last few games. And a part of it is the fact that he picked up an illness when the Bulls traveled to, traveled to Mexico to play the Magic, which I, I believe quite a few team officials as well as some players picked up the issues as well. So Jabari isn't alone here necessarily in picking up an illness in Mexico, but he's obviously been on the bench. Part of that was by design generally, but he has been unwell as well. But without Portis here, and the fact that Boylan has been making it very clear that he views Jabari Parker strictly as a power forward, which is one thing I definitely do agree with Boylan on. I wonder if we're going to see some minutes here for Jabari Parker at all. Will he sort of come back off the bench and be given minutes here? Now that particularly Zach Levine is out and the offense really needs a kick off the bench. Will we see Jabari Parker back in the rotation? Which is kind of ironic because just before I started recording this show, we actually got some news coming through on Twitter from Ian Begley, who mainly covers the Knicks, that the New York Knicks are actually one of the teams that may be interested in Jabari Parker in trading for him. So... Is it in the interest of actually playing Jabari Parker at this point when you potentially are working deals for Parker on the offside? And I think that is obviously a big reason as to why the Bulls have been sitting Jabari too. They don't necessarily want him going out there, getting injured potentially, particularly with those two ACLs. It's obviously a bit of a risk to have that type of player who's had that injury history going out there and playing big minutes and potentially injuring himself, making him null and void in terms of any trade. So the Bulls are probably approaching it from that perspective as well. So that's something to consider. But if the Knicks are interested in Jabari, I wonder if a deal can be struck at all. I I doubt it because I had a look at the the Knicks salary structure and really their main big contracts here are Enes Kanter, who is owed $19 He's an expiring deal. So in that sense... He pretty much is on a similar deal to what Jabari is, so that probably doesn't make sense. Why would you bother exchanging two guys who are both effectively expiring deals, play similar positions, 
come off the bench, do similar things. It probably doesn't make sense for either team. So I don't think it's going to be a Jabari for Cantor type deal at all. I think what the Knicks are trying to do here, we've obviously heard the Knicks are trying to be players for Kevin Durant. I think what they're trying to do here is get in on Jabari. The fact that he has a team option on year two of his deal effectively makes him an expiring contract. They obviously want to open up cap space by getting rid of some of their long-term money, which is typically what the Bulls are probably going to be getting back in terms of offers for Jabari Parker. Now, when you sign a player like Jabari who makes $20 million, it makes finding a deal really difficult because most of the deals or players making similar type money the teams are actually wanting to trade are guys that are, who are also on a bad contract. So if you think of someone like Chandler Parsons, for example, for Memphis, who was signed back in 2016, he's a type of player that I could definitely see teams necessarily phoning the Bulls up for Jabari saying, we want to get off Chandler Parsons' contract. He's got another year at 20-odd million dollars left. We'll give you a first-round pick to take him off our hands. We want to get off that money. Give us Jabari Park. We will take you as expiring. So I'm sure the Bulls could probably find a lot of offers like that. Maybe Portland are doing some similar things with either Evan Turner or Mo Harkless, Myers Leonard there as well. They're they're on bad money. So I'm thinking of those types of players. But Tim Hardaway Jr. as well is another guy that was signed in that same period who is making a lot of money. So $17.3 million in 2018-19. But more importantly... He's making $18 million in 2019-20, which is next season, and then has a player option for the year after of $19 million. So he's basically got two years and almost $40 million owed to him over the next two seasons. So the Knicks are probably pretty keen to get rid of Tim Hardaway's salary at this point. So I would imagine that probably makes sense for them as to why they would want to get rid of him and the fact that he makes pretty much equal money to Jabari. I could understand why Hardaway may be in this deal, but if it's not Hardaway, then someone like Courtney Lee, who is owed 12 or almost $13 million next season, they would probably be pretty keen to get rid of his guaranteed money, as well as Lance Thomas, who is 30 years old, and he's making almost $8 million next season. So if you combine those two guys, there's $20 million of guaranteed money next season which would make the deal for Jabari Parker work, obviously, from a from a contract perspective. So if they're not trying to get rid of Tim Hardaway Jr., it's probably a combination of Courtney Lee and Lance Thomas, which, again, they're bad contracts for the Bulls to be taking back. So if they are bad contracts, obviously, the Bulls should be asking for a first-round pick. But given Jabari is a bad player, he's been horrific this season, and the fact that he's not even playing for the team they don't actually have a lot of leverage the Bulls here. So I don't think they're going to be getting a first-round pick out of the Knicks. I'm going to give the Knicks some benefit of the doubt here in the sense that they're not necessarily wanting to give up a first-round pick for Jabari Parker by offloading this money. Now, maybe I'm giving them too much benefit of the doubt. They've obviously changed management here. So maybe I'm giving this management group too much benefit of the doubt, but I'm going to give them that for the moment. So if anything... What they are probably offering, along with maybe Tim Hardaway or a combination of Courtley Lee and Lance Thomas, is someone like Frank Nilakina, who is obviously a 20-year-old point guard taken in last year's draft, taken top 10, but hasn't necessarily panned out for the Knicks and is barely playing at all. I think it's more likely that they are offering Nilakina up in a, any deal for Jabari Parker than a first-round draft pick. Now, Nilakina, he hasn't necessarily played well for the Knicks at all this season, shooting only 35% from the field, under 30% from three, barely playing, like I mentioned before, under Fisdale. So 
He's been a bit of a disappointment for the Knicks and I could easily see why they would want to get rid of him. Even though in theory he still has some potential left, I could see why they would want to get rid of him. And for a team like the Bulls who have gone through and cycled through former point guards who were taken in the first round, we can think about Cameron Payne, Jerry and Grant, who the Bulls actually got from the Knicks, Michael Carter-Williams. Will Frank Nilakina be added to that list? I could see why the Knicks maybe are dangling Nilakina towards the Bulls and saying, well, you like taking these bad point guards that were taken back in the first round before. Why don't you take one of ours here? Take Nilakina. Take take this bad money and we, we want Jabari back. I could see that potentially being the deal, but that doesn't really interest me at all, to be honest with you. And I've, I've noted this on Twitter, but I'm not opposed to the Bulls just completely cutting Jabari Parker. If the offers that you're getting back for Parker are for bad long-term money and you're not necessarily getting a first-round draft pick back, which we probably shouldn't expect for a player like Parker, and you're only getting maybe a second-round pick or someone like Neil Akina, who was making pretty good money himself given that he was a former top 10 pick but isn't necessarily someone who's panned out in his first location, if, if that's all you're getting back, then I sort of question whether it's actually better use of your your assets just to sort of let Jabari go. Just wave him now, get rid of him. And by doing that, what you can actually do is open up a roster space. You can take a hit on maybe someone that becomes available in the buyout market, or you could go to the G League and try to find another wing down there that you can develop and make your own. I would rather kind of do that than take on bad long-term money than try to just trade Jabari for the sake of it. Now, obviously, the Bulls are going to try to do that. They have a relationship with his agent, Mark Bartlestein, who is obviously Bobby Portis's agent as well. So they want to keep that relationship open. So I'm not sure if just completely waiving Jabari is probably the best option for Jabari himself. But thinking specifically for the Bulls, I think there's actually some value in doing that because not only do you open up a roster spot, but you can keep open your cap space for next season. That $20 million, rather than taking on $20 million of guaranteed money for players like Courtney Lee and Lance Thomas, and the reward for that being only Frank Nilakina, let's say, I would actually rather just wave Jabari and keep that money open and, and go out there and get two or three maybe good role players that can help this young team next season rather than bring in Courtney Lee and Lance Thomas. So if these are the kinds of the offers that the Bulls are sort of getting from teams, which is what I'd expect, given, like I said, Jabari hasn't been a productive and winning player this year at all, which, of course, was predictable, then I'm not shelving the idea of completely waving the guy and just saying, Look, it didn't work, Jabari. Obviously, it wasn't going ever to work. We stuffed that one up. But here, we're going to wave you. We're going to buy you out. Go find another team. We're not going to trade you because we're not going to actually get anything back that's worth a damn. I don't know. That's just me. I'm not necessarily wedded to the idea that they have to trade Jabari Parker and have to get something back. If it's only, if the only way you're going to get something remotely plausible that has some sort of upside around it is by taking on some really bad money. And given that Jabari makes $20 million, it's going to be a combination of a lot of bad money. Then if, unless, the, unless the reward is worth it, I, I don't mind the idea of cutting him. Now, like I said before, maybe a team like the Grizzlies come calling and say, we'll give you Chandler Hutchinson. Or, sorry, not Chandler Hutchinson. How could I forget Chandler Hutchinson before in my rant about Jim Boylan? Just sidetracked for a moment, hit pause on that idea about Jabari. But how is Chandler Hutchinson only getting so few minutes Given the lack of options the Bulls have on the wing, oh my God, I'll stop there because I can go on another round about boiling, but getting back to Jabari, oh, if, if, if the Memphis Grizzlies come calling actually offer Chandler Parsons, not Hutchinson, but Parsons, and they say, we'll give you a first round pick, maybe top 20 protected, 
Maybe top 20 is still too strong. Who knows where the, the, where the Grizzlies will end up here, but maybe you want it lottery protected or something like that. But maybe in that instance is when you would trade Jabari. But if it's for Frank Nilakina or a second round pick or something like that, then just buy him out. Get rid of him, please. Just do that. <laughs> oh, man. Anyways, I've probably ranted on long enough for this episode of Bulls HQ. Thank you for joining me again. Like I said, apologies for being a little bit delayed in this episode this week. I've had some some issues that I couldn't necessarily avoid. Whilst I've been able to catch the Bulls playing it, I haven't really had much time to podcast. So I appreciate you guys hanging in there. But as always, there are a lot of other Bulls podcasts out there that can keep you filled in the interim whilst I'm not necessarily around. So they obviously do a great job too. But Thank you for being patient with me. I appreciate that. But like I said, I wanted to get a show in before the upcoming Christmas period here. So on that note, I hope you all enjoy your holidays. I hope you all enjoy your Christmas, whatever you celebrate. I hope it's a good time surrounded by your nearest and dearest and you all remain safe and have a happy sort of break here. Hopefully the balls are a little bit better. Maybe that'll make things a little bit better. That's all I want for Christmas. Some actual watchable Bulls basketball games, please. I don't don't think that's too much to ask, Mr. Santa Claus there. So please bring that around for me, but not only me, but for everyone else. But like I said before, enjoy your breaks, Bulls fans. Hopefully you all stay safe and enjoy the holiday period. I'll be back hopefully before the New Year's out, probably at a similar time next week as to what I've done here after the Christmas period. So be on the lookout for that. As always, follow the show on Twitter at BullsHQPod. Follow me at MK Hoops. Jump on iTunes, give the show a five-star review. Leave a comment if you like. I really do appreciate all that sort of stuff. And look, it it is the season of giving, so I would very much appreciate it. But uh, like I said, thank you for joining me this week on Bulls HQ. I'm off to the dentist now, so pray for me, guys. Hopefully, it's not too expensive and not too painful, but I'll be back again next week. Be on the lookout for that, so I'll speak to you all then. Rose Davis, historian and co-host of the sports podcast, Burn It All Down. And now I'm hosting the new season of American Prodigy, all about Black girls in gymnastics. For the last 40 years, Black gymnasts have moved from the margins to the core of the sport and changed gymnastics along the way. Now, they tell their stories. You'll meet trailblazers like Diane Durham, superstars like Jordan Childs, and everyone in between. Listen to American Prodigies on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.